0: We're going to continue this morning in the Gospel of Mark. We've been doing it for a while. We're going to finish it up here, kind of coming to the culmination. If you were here last week, uh, you may remember that I told you that I had planned on speaking last week on the the whole text of Mark from 14, I think 50 or 40-something to 72, and it was just too much, too much. So We broke it into two weeks. We're going to pick that up again today, but I wanted to remind you kind of where we are in the Gospel of Mark, and I want to kind of lay out the framework for today's conversation because it's kind of based off what was last week's conversation as well. There's this question that's asked in the middle of, this, um, of Mark 14, are you not going to answer? As a matter of fact, if you grab an engagement sheet, it's on the back side of there. Are you not going to have an answer? And that question was asked to Jesus by the high priest, but it kind of applies to three circumstances in this text. The first is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And we talked about that last week. Um, I hope you were here for that. And if you weren't, just, you know, ask him about it. (laughs) But it was this cry of Jesus in his hour of need and a a great prayer that show us how we can uh, engage with the Father through times of difficulty and also be pleasing to him, even though we're being honest, maybe even in fact because we're being honest. So that was last week, the Garden of Gethsemane prayer, and then also um, Jesus being taken into custody. And so that's this conversation that Jesus has with God, and kind of begs the question, are you not going to answer Jesus? Then the second will come today, actually, whenever we talk about Jesus before the Sanhedrin, when he's asked directly, will you not answer? And then the third is going to be with Peter. Now we all know and love Peter. Peter's one of the disciples, formerly known as Simon, and becomes known as the Rock because he professes Christ. That Jesus is different than any other rabbi. He is actually the manifestation of God's promises to God's people. God in the flesh. And so this Peter will ha- be asked the question as well that maybe you and I have been asking in our lives. And the questions begged, are you not going to answer? So that's kind of these three different conversations that are tied in here uh, today. Um, I want to do what we always want to pray. And then we're going to get into the word together. So um, let's pray together first. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to worship you, to join together with those who are believing and maybe those who are struggling to believe, to know you more fully because this is about you, not about us, that we gather here today to glorify you, to please you, um, to, to just make an offering before you that you might be glorified amongst your people. We were reminded this morning in the songs we sang that you are worthy of all praise and in fact all creation rightly owes our breath to you that this is a manifestation of who we are, that we ought to be returning praise to you because you made us and you made everything that we know. We thank you for that truth today as our creator. We pray, Father God, in this time now in your word that we, though we may feel far from you, might draw near, that your word might speak into our hearts and our minds and change us, that we could become wholly yours Father, for many here today, maybe we're tired of living the way we've been living, and we want to live in the light before you. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that might be made true today, that we would have the courage to enter a relationship. We love you so much. We know your word has power, and we claim that power in the name of Jesus over his people for all eternity. We thank you for it. May your word do its work in us today. We thank you so much. We trust you with this prayer, and we bind it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've been with us, you know. I'm going to go ahead and have you turn in your Bibles to Mark 14. But I want to do a, a little bit, of, like I said, I kind of already gave a little preview, but this Garden of Gethsemane. So we're actually looking at 53 through 72 today. So go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, by the way, uh, phones are awesome. Bibles are on phones these days. But you can grab one of these orange Bibles the down in the chair row and look it up. It's important to us that you would get your eyes on the Word of God somehow in your life. Uh, We believe it is his revelation to his people. We believe it is his revelation to you, no matter what you think you do or don't know about the scriptures. And so God has made it very clear, very plain to us through his word. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark 14. And I want to talk just for a minute. This last week when we talked about uh, garden, we have groups here at Family Bible called Family Groups where we meet and talk more deeply about Scripture. And our family group had great conversations about this. Matter of fact, we didn't get everything covered in our family group that we covered last Sunday. We only covered the prayer of Jesus in the garden. We're really digging into that prayer and what it means. There's an interesting play of words that I talked about. I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but I want to bring this up again. That Jesus says this thing where he says, he falls down if it's possible. He prays that if it's possible, this cup might pass. And then he says in his prayer, confession to the Father, all things are possible. And and we wrestle with that in family a little bit. I want to share with you something that must come out of our understanding of the gospel of Mark. We've been studying the gospel of Mark all this time and it's been a phenomenal study but here we get this poignant moment where jesus says if it's possible let this cup pass and then he says to the father everything is possible for you and then he ends with whatever you want that's what i want why bring this up again we talked about it, but i want to hit it again this idea that jesus must die jesus must die and you might think well why? I mean, I know we have a cross-up here, you know, of Christians where crosses our necks. We talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but Jesus must die. And Jesus says in prayer, if it's possible, and all things are possible for you, but Jesus must die. And and that should give us pause and go, well, why? Why must Jesus die? Many people in the world right now, today, you could walk around and they will say, Jesus was a great guy. I follow Jesus in all his human qualities. I want to be good to others. I want to treat others how I want them to treat me. Um, You know, I'm going to love God and love my neighbor. We, We say all these words as if we're going to do this of our own. We're going to become good people. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says we are not good people. The gospel says we cannot become good people. And the gospel says that someone must pay a price for sin. The other gospels record the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and his great distress. Why? Because he must bear the sins of the world. That's all the world, for all time, for all people. Every sin. I don't know how you feel, but when I think about the the demand that my sin, that my failure has required that I would pay with my own blood, I can't, I don't have enough to pay. And then whenever I think that my sin must be paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, it seems ridiculous that he would pay that for me. But here's what I want to say to you. Only the blood of Jesus can make right all sin for all time. This isn't a very great thing to talk about. People don't want to know there's many ways to God, right? That's not what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's an exclusive claim. You must acknowledge the blood. John 3.16 has this great verse It says um, whosoever should believe will have eternal life. That's great. But it also says that whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's rejecting the Son of God. Read it. It's uh, um, John 3.18. The blood of Jesus is required. And this Garden of Gethsemane is this culmination of this moment where Jesus acknowledges that it must be this way. And we must acknowledge that as his people. We must come to terms with the fact that we are not good people, that Jesus was required to die for our sins, and that the way to salvation is to receive it. Not of good works, not of how, you know, (laughs) Christian we are. But because Jesus said so. Listen, Jesus says, these are mine. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. I die for my sheep. I lay down my life so I might take it up again. This is why it's required. This is why it's unique. And this is why we must know that truth. In our group, a family group I was talking, I, I may have even said it here before, there was this great quote. I, I, you know, I was an atheist for a long time. I don't know if you know about me. I was an atheist for a long time. I mean, for years and years and years, hardcore atheist. And one of my things that I feel drawn to, I won't say favorite things, but I, I keep getting drawn back into this idea of conversations with people who are atheists. And, and uh, I, I watched this uh, conversation between an atheist and a, and a believer, a Christian. Not even a theist, but a Christian. Someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And they were having this conversation. And one of the things that you should do if you're going to have a conversation with someone who doesn't agree with you is state their position well, right? That's an understanding you must be able to do to say, here's what I think you're saying and see if it's right. And in this conversation between this atheist and this Christian, the atheist said this. And I wanted to read it because it's, it's an amazing quote. It's an amazing quote. He says, Christians are monotheists they believe that there is just one God and that Jesus is God manifest on earth and that he is your savior and you accept him for redeeming us for sins that we did not commit. Someone else in the past committed them. Now whether, you know, that's true, the fall, but we've all committed sin. It's not just redeeming us from sin other people, but I don't want to argue with the man because listen to what he says next. So as I understand this, God sacrifices himself to himself, to save us from himself. And you know what I went? Yes! (laughs) Yes! That's exactly what the gospel says. God sacrifices himself to himself to save us from himself. That's exactly what the gospel says. That we might always have a relationship with God. That we might not be cast out from his presence because of our stupidity and our sin. Yes! But the sad part is, for him, that's rejection. I can't believe. And for me, that's salvation. That's the only gospel that saves. It's important that we recognize and we own and we wrestle with that reality, that we, we acknowledge the truth of what's happening in Scripture because otherwise you turn into a fairy tale, a cute story that will not save us. But instead, we must acknowledge the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him and that we must be saved through his blood. We must. And it goes against everything in our humanity to receive salvation like so I want to pick up now in fifty-three. So that's kinda of we have here the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, and then and then Jesus is handed over. And here we go in fifty-three. Read with me if you would. They took Jesus to the high priests, and the chief priests, and the elders, and the teachers of the law, all came together. Peter followed him at a distance. Right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat there with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. I want to give a little bit of a timeline here for what's been happening. You know, a few weeks ago we had communion together, and we remember the Last Supper, right? This meal that Jesus had with his disciples. It was the Passover meal, the celebration of when God saved his people in Egypt. And here, this is the same night. So we've talked a lot about this, but it's the same night. So they've been kind of going out into the garden of an evening. Um, to spend time in prayer. And now in the middle of the night, they've come and they've, they've taken Jesus and they bring him. And I want to bring that up because there's going to be some clues here in today's text that this is all through one evening, right? That they've come and taken Jesus. They've, they've, they've uh, removed him and taken him to the high priest's house or um, a mansion, if you will, you know, a, a, a probably a very big stately home to face his accusers in the middle of the night. You wouldn't be uh, wrong to have thought, man, this must have taken days to do. But it was not like that. It was one evening. It was it was uh, Thursday evening. What do we call it? Monday, Thursday, with the meal into Friday. All this happens. They led Jesus away to the high high priest's house, and I want you to see it. It says that all the chief priests and all and the elders and the scribes were gathered there. I want us to kind of feel a bit of the drama of what's happening. It's not just Jesus is praying in the garden and saying to disciples, why can't you stay awake? But now they've taken him away. And all these people gather to accuse Jesus, to find some way to, to find him guilty. This is after Jesus was in the, uh, uh, Jerusalem, in the temple courts, uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God before Passover. I mean, this is all like on the heels of those days that we've been talking about. And here this evening, this betrayal, in the middle of the night, they lead Jesus to the high priest's house. We're going to talk for a minute about Peter, and then we're going to really focus on what's happening with the high priest and all the, the chief priests and teachers of the law and um, elders. And so um, Peter actually follows Jesus after that. You remember that everyone fled. I mean, you remember Peter said, I'll never leave you, and then and everyone runs away when Jesus is, is arrested. But Peter kind of follows at a distance. And and I guess I would say he follows close, but not too close. You know what I mean? You ever had a friend like that, that they'll hang out with you until you get in trouble, and they'll kind of stand at a distance and kind of watch to see what happens to decide how good of a friend they are? (laughs) They're not going to enter the fray with you. You know, they're going to just kind of watch from a distance. "Mm, He's got himself in trouble. I'm not sure I'm your friend right now. See how this goes. That's Peter right here, right? But it is crazy, is it not, that he walks into the, the, um, the, um, the courtyard of the high priests. He, he enters, and this is not, this isn't like, to give you an idea, what it, I, I, we don't have any construction in the United States like this hardly anymore. Very little like this. But it's an inner courtyard protected by buildings. Right? I mean, some would say like, well, maybe it's a place, there's a wall around the, the property and you stand in the inside where the sheep are brought in for safety at night. Right? You bring all your sheep into your kind of area there to make sure they're safe because of your, your livestock and your, your livelihood. And then the next day, when it's clear and the bandits are gone, you let them back out to graze in the field. But there's actually an inner court, which um, I was thinking about this, and for us who's been to Guatemala, we've seen an inner courtyard at the hospital. Uh, the Fickers are building a hospital in Guatemala, and they've built it like a big O with a few entrances on the corners, or a big box. And in the center is, a, is earth an open sky. And it's a courtyard. And it's where people can kind of hang out and socialize, and, and, you know, and it's very common construction in other places of the world. This is the kind of place that Peter enters into, the inner courts, the, the inner um, uh, courtyard. I don't want to keep struggling to say that. And he walks in there, and he's outside. Now, hear, hear the words, right? And he's cold, and so he begins to warm himself by a fire, and he's warming himself by a fire next to the servants of the high priest. Do you get the picture? So he's following him in there. And he's, he's cold cause he's outdoors, and he walks over and he nuzzles up next to the fire where all these dudes are hanging out, and they all serve the high priest. The word actually says they are under rowers. They are servants. They are the people who would be in the bottom of the ship rowing the boat while this captain is telling them where we're going. They can't even see where they're, they're just rowing. They're just workers. That's all they are. And Peter finds himself amongst the workers, hanging out by the fire, close enough to Jesus to get some idea of what's happening, but not close enough to be in danger. So the chief priests, this is what it says, and the whole Sanhedrin, let's read a little more. Let me find out where we're at here. Yeah, verse uh, 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any evidence. So now you have the, them doing what they want to do in the middle of the night. I want to talk just for a minute, just for a minute to get the scale and scope of what's happening here because I was a bit surprised about this myself, right? The Sanhedrin was the setting council. These were the people, and this is in Jerusalem, these were the people who sat on the high council of Jerusalem kind of deciding um, what is good and is bad. And by the way, one more layer here, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop on this, but um, the, the, uh, they are being ruled over by the, the Romans. They're ruling over them. They're, they're, um, they're under authority but they've been allowed to have their own religious courts and that's what this is this is a religious court so it's for religious people to decide what is good and bad religiously but they can't do anything without the permission of the state once they make a decision that's kind of how that works it's it's a weird setup but that's what's happening here so the Sanhedrin are these guys who are all religious people and they're all seeking for a way to condemn Jesus to death they've already decided he deserves to die they just got to figure out how to make him die that's what they're trying to do here the Sanhedrin is actually um, 71 members, which includes elders from the community, right? Those who are respected and venerated. Scribes or the teachers of the law, those who know the scriptures and what they say. And then prominent members of the high priestly families. 71 people. 70 people plus the one high priest are all conspiring. So I always kind of blown away because this is like no small endeavor in the middle of the night. It's a whole bunch of people. Now, you might say, well, was everyone there? I don't know. I don't know the rules of Sanhedrin. I don't know if everyone must be there to make a ruling or if only a few can be there. What's a quorum? I don't know. But this body, this um, ecclesiastical body, this religious body is deciding, trying to find a way to accuse Jesus so that he might be killed, recommended for death. Seventy-one people. I want to show you, actually, where this comes from in Scripture. Um, it comes from Numbers, because I thought, well, how do they know it's 71? So I made that up, right? But here it is in Numbers 11:16. The Lord said to Moses, and, and let's don't miss this for a minute, Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials amongst the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they might stand here with you. See, it was this kind of idea of, like, group leadership. Find 70 people. Why 71? Because Moses is there, too. 71. This chief priest, this high priest, stands in the seat of Moses, if you see that. And then all these other people from Israel are there to judge what is good, what is bad, together, to decide. Let's see how they do it. 56. Many testified falsely against Jesus, but their statements did not agree with each other. These religious leaders began to lie about Jesus, and they lied badly. <laughs> they can't even agree with their lies. 57, and some stood up and gave this false testimony against Jesus. We have heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I will build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony, their witness, did not agree. So even those dudes were like... We heard him say this before. He's going to destroy this temple, this man-made temple, and build another man-made uh, temple not made by man in three days. Right? But they can't agree about that. I want to stop here uh, for a quick second and uh, offer a couple of thoughts. Um, there's this weird thing if you read the Bible where, and this is why we ought to be on guard ourselves, where people take the word of God, uh, what God really said, and they twist it just a little bit. And you might think, well, that's not bad, right? Because they know what the Word of God said, right? Didn't Jesus say something like, I will destroy this temple made by man in three days, make a new temple not made by... Does that sound familiar to you if you've been reading the Bible? Because when when I heard that, I'm like, I've kind of heard Jesus say something like that. But I don't think it was that. But it, it was something like that. And that's how this works. Okay, go with me for a minute. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. God says... Uh, do not eat from this tree, but everything else you can have. The deceiver the, the comes, the serpent, and says, did he really say, don't eat from this tree or look at it or touch it? Now you ought to ask a question. Is that what God said? Nope. <laughs> it's not. You know what I'm saying? It's just twisting God's word a little bit, and it'll get you way out of alignment with what God wants for you. He said, don't eat it. He didn't say don't touch it, don't look at it. Don't think about it, don't eat it. Liar. Liar. Same thing here. Jesus said, I'm going to destroy a man. Liar. It's not what he said. As a matter of fact, if you want to know what he said, it's recorded in the Gospel of John. And Jesus said that this temple will, will, will not stand, and, and in three days I will replace it or something. I can look it up. But it, it, he doesn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple made by man. But he says that this is not going to last. There's something new coming. That's a great study to do, by the way. What was Jesus talking about whenever he made that comment? I think you can find it in John 2, I believe. So they make this false accusation, but even the false accusations do not align with one another. The things they say that they heard are not true. So here we go. The the chief priest is hearing all this. He's in charge of all these guys, and he's trying to make sense of all this. And it says, the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Now look at the word, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. He's on trial by his brothers, supposedly his brothers in the Lord, his Jewish family are trying him, and he gives no answer to their accusations. Why? Why? Why doesn't he say? That's not true. That's not what I said. You've misunderstood me. I mean, he spent plenty of time correcting and rebuking people to this point in his ministry. Why now is he silent as he faces accusers? I think it's interesting. Um, I don't know. The only thing I come down on this is that they're lying. Have you ever tried to refute someone who's lying about you? Have you ever tried? Have you ever somebody falsely accused you of something? And and you're like, that's not true, that's not true. I didn't say this, I said that. And you you get down this ridiculous rabbit hole where no truth is known and everything is doubted. Nothing can be clear. I believe they're baiting Jesus. They're trying to trap him and he won't respond to lies. That's important because Jesus is going to give an answer, but not to their false accusations. He's not impressed. By the way, brothers and sisters, if people accuse you falsely, so what? <laughs> Can we just get a so what on that? When, whenever people accuse you falsely, you know what you, you usually think? Oh, my reputation. What are people think of me? That's so stupid. You know who you are. You serve before an audience of one. There is a God who sees everything, good and bad, who judges you rightly. Right? But no one else sees us that way. People accuse us falsely, so what? Get stuck in that trap of trying to pretend, answer false accusations, or you know, live up to some false standard. Be you. God knows you. Be you. That's what Jesus does. He's not He's not gonna answer these questions. So look at the tactic now. The chief the chief priest turns a little bit here and he says, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed One. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Interesting. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers this way, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now that's an answer. You see, when he's asked false questions, he's not going to respond. False accusations, he's not going to respond. But when he's asked a direct... Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus says three things. I am. I told you Mark, when Mark started out writing this gospel, he wanted us to get to the point we have to deal with Jesus is the Messiah. That's the whole point of his gospel. Jesus is the Messiah. And so the first thing is, yes, I am. That's what Mark records. And then the second one, second thing he says is, and you chief priests, high priests, Sanhedrin, right? Elders, uh, scribes, Pharisees. You will see me sitting at the right hand and what does the word say here? The right hand of the mighty one. That's what the NIV says. The mighty one. He he actually says, you will see me sitting at the right hand of dunamis, power. Listen. Jesus says, I am the Christ and you will see me sitting at the right hand of Power. Second part of his answer. Ability. All things are possible for you. That was his prayer. And he says, and you, rulers, will see me sitting at the right hand of true power, of real authority. The words recorded, mighty one, ability, the one who has ability. This is offensive enough. And then he goes on the third part. And you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. There's a couple things here, right? If if you've, we talked about this before, right? But if you've not read the book of Revelations, you ought to read the book of Revelations because when Jesus comes back, it's not this kind of sheepish, he's like riding on clouds of heaven, you know? I mean, I told you about this before, but it's amazing. And he has accusations against his churches in the book of Revelations, by the way. You've lost your first love, you know what I mean? You're lukewarm. I mean, there's things that he's not pleased with when he comes back for his people. But he says, you're going to see me at the right hand of power, and combing on the clouds of heaven. I am that Christ. Probably not the answer the chief priest expected from Jesus. He probably was thinking he would deny it or stay silent or something. The word says the chief priest then tore his clothes. He ripped his clothes. His garments. This would be something that you might think, well that's radical, right? I mean, but it's something that was like a, ser- like ah, I'm so offended by what just happened. I don't want any part of it. But he tore his holy garments. He says no. And then he begins to level accusations and condemnation against Jesus immediately for what he just said. The high priest tore his clothes. The word says, why do we need any more witnesses? He asks. You have heard this blasphemy. What do you all think? He wants a verdict right now. Jesus said he's the Christ. He's going to the right hand of power. He's going to come in the clouds of heaven he stands rightfully accused of what? Blasphemy. That's what he says. Blaspheming against the Lord. He's coaxing them to give an answer. Look at the word. They all contemned Jesus as worthy of death. You know, we look at it and we go, what a, what a, he was sinless, he was perfect, he was holy, and he was condemned wrongly. They condemned him as worthy of death because he dared to say he is God in the flesh, that he is the Son of God, that he has power. And they condemned him for it. He is worthy of dying. I want to stop, I don't go any further, I want to talk for one second, and then I want to talk about their immediate visceral response to this, um, proclamation by Jesus Sanhedrin was 71 people right a couple of people that um, we might know I'm trying to think of who they are one is Nicodemus Uh, Nicodemus was a member of the ruling council Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin we don't know if he was there or not Nicodemus is the guy that comes in John 3 and says what must I do to be saved? have eternal life? And Jesus gives that answer whosoever should believe me will have eternal life that's Nicodemus comes at night um, and then the other dude, I can't think of his name right now, but he's the guy that goes and asks to take Jesus' body off the cross. He's the one that, we're going to hear about him in a minute. He's the one that comes and says, can I take his body down? He's a member of the ruling council, most likely, and, and probably there, or possibly there, whenever the word says what? They all condemned Jesus. They all did. In the heat of this condemnation, in the heat of this self righteous refutation of the gospel truth that jesus has proclaimed that i am he i am the christ they begin to accuse him and look at what the word says and i want you to get this 65 then some began to spit at him they blindfolded him it says they covered his face you know we think oh you put a blindfold. no they covered his face right they threw a, a a bag over his head or something the word says they began to punch them punch him with their fists they began to slap them with their open hands and they begin to mock him by saying prophesy prophesy do you see how that happened jesus is silent against liars he's asked an honest question he gives an honest answer and then immediately they begin to spit at him punch him mock him put a hood on him i want you to think about that for a minute what this experience is like for jesus why are they screaming prophesy prophesy You know, you might think prophecy is about telling the future. But you know, prophecy is about telling you what's happening right now. Jesus, what's happening right now? You know what they're saying? Who hit you? Who hit you? Who's doing that? If you're God, prove it. You you say you're the son of God. And they punch him with their fists, and they slap him with their hands, and they mock him, and they spit on him. Jesus, the son of God, the one who will sit at the right hand of power, the one who will come on the clouds of heaven. Don't miss it. Immediately, the religious people begin to condemn and mock and ridicule Jesus. One more point. We're going to move on to the second part of the story. The guards took him and beat him. That's those dudes that Peter was standing around. Now, I'm not saying it's the same dudes, right? Because we're going to hear that they're coming down. There's this, they're upstairs or something, and Peter's downstairs. But the same people that Jesus is warming himself by the fire, begin to punch, mock, spit on Jesus. Who are these people? They aren't high holy men. They're servants of the high priest. This is like your slaves begin to kick and punch someone and mock them. This is, this is like the utmost in humiliation. The guards and Peter standing amongst them. So this turns the story now, 66, back toward Peter's experience. Look at 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. So Peter's there warming up. All this drama is happening. Jesus is getting punched and mocked and spit on and yelled at. And and this girl comes by and she looks at, at Peter and she begins to look very closely at Peter and start to make some connections that Peter doesn't belong here. He's not one of us. And this is the accusation that she makes. It says, when she saw Peter warming himself by the fire, she looked closely at him and she said this, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. Isn't that an interesting way to say that? You were with that Nazarene Jesus. We can't walk through this without acknowledging there's some kind of uh, degradation of Jesus's name because he's from Nazareth remember the question is asked what good come what good can come from Nazareth Nazareth was nothing good happened in Nazareth that Nazarene you can you can just almost hear the sneer and this young girl's voice oh you're with that gross Nazarene you are Jesus you're with Jesus and Peter says this I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he left the courtyard. I don't know. I I don't even, it's not even that I don't agree with you. I don't even know what you mean. He rebukes her. No, I don't know what you're, who, what? I, I don't understand. And he makes his way. Where? Away from Jesus. That dirty Nazarene. You can imagine, right? Like, you hear what's happening with Jesus. You hear the fervor and the mocking, and they're screaming, and you know it's not going well, and you're accused, and in your moment of flesh, you're like, I don't know him. Who are you? Who are you? And you go outside. Oh, look at this girl though. She's persistent. The word says, um, when the servant girl, oh, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He went out to the entryway. When the servant girl, so he's on the front porch basically now. When the servant girl saw him on the front porch, she said again to those standing around him, This is one of them. And again, he said, no, I am not. Look at, he's not just saying, I am not, I don't know Jesus, I don't know who he is. I'm not even with him. Christians, no. Believers in the Messiah, no. I I, I don't, I don't want, I I don't have anything to do with those people. What's he almost saying? I'm one of you. I'm just going to blend in, man. Christians are weird. The Jesus' gospel stuff is awkward. I'm not with them. I'm like you. I'm just like you. He denies it. After a little while, the girl's gone. He's probably like, thank God she left, <laughs> right? After a little while, those standing near Peter, they're still hanging out looking at him suspect because they're like, wait a minute. And they say, surely you are one of them. Because you're a Galilean. And the word doesn't say it in NIV, but it says, your voice betrays you. You sound like a Galilean. You, you walk like a Galilean. You talk like a Galilean. We think you're a Galilean. The third accusation. And look at Peter's visceral response. 71, man. He began to call down curses. Right? I mean the word says began to curse you might think he started dropping the F-bomb and stuff but that's not exactly what it means it means he started cursing you know like may God strike me dead you know like uh, whatever I have to do to prove to you that I am not one of them I don't care what you think of my voice or how I look or how I am not one of them he began to call down curses on himself God strike me dead if I'm a Galilean and he swore to them an oath an oath before the Lord I am not look at what the word says I don't know this man that you're all talking about. Peter has gotten himself, I don't know, Jesus? I don't understand what you're saying. I don't know the people. I I, I don't even know anything about him. Utter and complete denial. 72 Immediately the rooster crows a second time and then Peter remembers the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And Peter broke down and began to weep. This, listen, this one who had said, you are the Christ, and and Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new name. You're not Simon, you're Peter now. This one who was in the boat and said, Lord, if, if it's you on the water, call me out that I can walk to you. And he got out of the boat and he walked to Jesus. This Peter denies Jesus and then remembers. This is exactly what Jesus said. This is what Peter said. Jesus, these idiots are going to betray you, but even if you have to die, I will die with you. And then Jesus, Peter realizes He's done what he said he would never do, deny Jesus. Listen to me. Peter's story ought to give us pause, you know, Because you go, oh, if I was Peter, I would. But you know, we would do the same thing, right? I mean, I can't even get through the whole sentence. Like, we wouldn't do that. We would. Peter's not different from us. Yeah, Bill, but I, I, I know. I, I love Jesus. I, I sing songs on Sundays to Jesus. I, I know Jesus. would never deny Jesus and then a friend comes and go like, hey, how do you, how do, you do life? And you're like, well, I'm just a pretty good person. I just work really hard. How do you have peace with God? Well, you know, I go to church, play in the band, or I preach on Sundays. How many, how many of us? I mean, right? These little ways. Jesus. I'm a sinner, and Jesus saved me. I still sin, and Jesus saves me. See, that's the hard thing about Peter is we feel that, you know. Maybe you've not had the opportunity yet for someone to ask you what you believe. But man, Peter's denial comes so close to home. Jesus, or Peter uh, breaks down and weeps because he denies Jesus three times. Um, By the way, the trial of Jesus isn't over. We're going to stop here today. But the next, I told you there's this religious council. Now it goes to the civil authorities for prosecution. They've made their finding. He's a blasphemer. Now they want the state to act on behalf. Do what needs to be done and kill Jesus. I don't know in your life, like, first of all, man, maybe you don't even know. Maybe you are still walking around in your sin and you think, I'm going to be good enough one day. If you believe that, that's your right to believe that. Maybe you believe that God isn't real at all. You figured it out. You know, after all these thousands of years, you're the one that has the right answer. And you know that the... Something else solves all of the world's problems. But one of the questions we're always wrestling with, especially in church, and you're in church, so I want to assume you have an interest, is who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is in your life? You know, is he like a, a safety measure, like fire insurance? Like, well, he might be real, he might not, but, you know, if I'm wrong, no big deal, and if I'm right, whew, I'm not going to be burning in hell forever. Is That your view of Jesus? Or is your view of Jesus like someone that you know, someone that you know knows you, someone that you can turn to whenever everythings going wrong? you could say, "But you know me. Do you know Jesus like that? Do you know that all the sin that you had to pay, he paid, and you might be free to be with him, to know him. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you think of Jesus' testimony, you know? Jesus said it right here. I am, and you will see me sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that the Jesus that you know who is saving you right now is the right hand of the Father, the right hand of power and authority? And then lastly, of course, if we're confronted, there's some more to ask, and why should we have to be confronted to acknowledge Jesus? Would you say, I know him. He's my Savior save you too. Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. Honestly, God, uh, the story is so grand and beautiful. It's hard to get our heads fully around the truth that you would send your son to live among us, to show us the kingdom of God, and then to die that we might enter in. We thank you first and foremost because you are a God worthy to be worshiped not only because you made us, but because you save us, because you invite us, because you want us. We thank you for that reality today. I pray for friends who are here and friends who are not here today who believe that somehow you've left them out of your kingdom, that the liar would stop lying, and that your truth would break through. I pray that your Holy Spirit would impress upon the hearts of those who are hearing me that you died to forgive their sin, that they might be free, and that the burden that they're bearing is not theirs to bear if they would but surrender it to you. I pray, Father, for the opportunity to witness your work in the world and to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, that your church will be found loving you first and passionately proclaiming the good news. We asked the whole church would do it, but it's us, isn't it, Father? me. It's each person gathered here. Give us an opportunity to acknowledge you this week. Help us to say that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to believe it and live it. You are awesome, and we love you. Continue to transform us as we read your word and follow after Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.